heavyweight alert. Journalist, author, editor, novelist, and educator, Linda Villarosa has delivered a critically important book and must read. The title is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. In this book, Linda describes how and why Black Americans live sicker and die quicker. And it's not because of race or class, but racism. First off, race is a made up construct. There is no physiological or biological difference in humans that account for the huge inequities in health outcomes between blacks and whites in America. The inequities are driven by long-term institutional discrimination, the daily experiences of anti-black racism that wears on the body and the mind, and the biases that exist in healthcare and within healthcare providers. All of that's there. Now, Linda, through citations of numerous studies, data, and the stories of people, humans, lays out in detail how this came to be and some ways forward. She is uniquely positioned to write such a monumental work. I realized in preparation for this interview that from her time as a writer at Essence and now as a writer for the New York Times Magazine, she has reported on many issues affecting the health of Black Americans, whether it be HIV AIDS, environmental racism and its effects on health, eugenics, diet, COVID, you name it. She's been at the forefront of reporting and writing our stories in the healthcare system. Many of you have a copy of her book, Body and Soul, in your home. And she was also a contributor for the 1619 Project. Like I said, heavyweight alert for real. We are so fortunate and appreciative to have Linda Villarosa on this episode of The Parlay in All Blue. Linda Villarosa, welcome to The Parlay in All Blue. Good to meet you, and how are you? I'm doing great, and good to meet you back. Yes, yes, and thank you for, for doing this. And I have to tell you that I enjoyed this book from the wonderful cover. The cover is like artwork in and of itself. And I am somebody who is an e-reader now, mainly because of the fonts, <laughs> to be honest with you. But there are some books that I, I have also the physical copy. And this is one that I'm glad that I have. And I urge everyone to not only get a copy, but two copies, because it is a very important book about health and racism and the intersection of, of, of all of those things. And you are going to want to get this and uh, also get one for a friend. So thank you for a wonderful book out, out the gate. So from the cover to Umalini Malaba Adebo's poem, all the way through the acknowledgments, I've been engaged. So uh, I appreciate you. Well, thank you. I chose that cover myself. That is a young Black local artist from New Orleans. And I found his artwork on Instagram. And my publisher was generous enough to say, "You, it's your choice. So you put that. If you love that, put it on. And I loved it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's that's great. I I love it as as well. 
Now, your book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation, kind of starts with a, a, a summary of Black folks in America live sicker and die quicker. And it you tell it through a sort of threefold lens of there's three things, longstanding discrimination in institutions and structures in American society, racism that wears the bodies of Black people. And you have bodies there. You wrote bodies in the book, but I have a note in mental health, and we'll come back to that when we get into it. And bias in the healthcare that creates a system of unequal treatment. And I've made a note of those three things to keep myself on track. But I really want to start our conversation with your journey, because you speak very openly about your journey in terms of understanding this crisis and it being about racism and not race and sort of self-help and what I call, what my parents would call striving, striving values and striver values. Can you talk a little bit about your journey to understanding how racism and health intersect here? Well, even before you use that word, I was thinking of it because I come from a family of strivers up from Mississippi to Chicago and then Chicago to the suburbs of Denver. And, um, you know, we were this family who believed that if you worked hard enough, all good things would happen to you. And it was all about achievement, especially in education. My foundational job was at Essence Magazine as the health editor, and I fit in great there because that's what the philosophy behind the magazine was. It was lift as you climb. If you know better, you'll be better and all those kinds of things. And, you know, our our mission was to just educate the women and some men who were reading the magazine in America And if they understood what to do about having good health, then the whole the health outcome of us as a race would, you know, change. Um, So that's what I really thought when I first got there in the late 80s. And then no matter how hard I worked on that and did some, you know, wrote and edited some wonderful articles and was at a you know place that was just really we had our heart in the right place. The health status of um, black women and men and people didn't change. And in some ways, as far as maternal mortality, got worse. And also longevity, that didn't change. We weren't living longer, no matter what, even changing our behavior. And then it was also at a time when there was an unprecedented rise of the Black middle class. So there was something going on that was beyond just what education and even income and wealth could change. Yeah. And you came to some of these realizations through personal experience of walking through healthcare and medical emergencies with your your dad. And I chuckled at your sort of uh, business card story because it sounds like one from my family. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's exactly getting so dressed up to go to the hospital. So I guess it was in the uh, late 90s, my mother, I was living in New York City. I was working by then as the health editor of the New York Times newspaper. My mother called me and said, you need to come home to Denver right away. Get on a plane and put on really nice clothes. Put your New York Times business cards in your pocket and I'll pick you up at the airport. Your dad is sick and needs you to come home. So I got on the, I was pregnant with my um, son. I got on the plane And my mom was waiting for me. And I said, what is going on? What are we doing? Because she was really dressed up too. And she said, your dad is very ill. He's in the hospital. And she said, they're treating him like an N-word. So 
I was shocked and went to the hospital with her. He chose um, in Denver, uh, the Veterans Hospital. And when we got there, my dad is a, was a scientist, impeccably dressed, very well-groomed, super educated, mild-mannered person, like really polite, gentlemanly, I would call him. He was dressed in this gown that was dirty. Um, he was really upset. His hair was in disarray. Um, so it just wasn't him. So I leaned down and saw that he was had restraints. He was restrained to the bed. I call it shackles. And I'm looking around thinking, how could this happen to my father? And he said, when I leaned down, he was really upset. He said, just get me out of here. And my mom had been a hospital administrator before and just was a black woman in America. So she knew what to do. We went home to his house. We got his pictures of him in his nice clothes before he was ill. We got his medals. He was a, a veteran and he had medals from his service. We explained to them that he was educated as a scientist. His area was bacteriology. That's what, what his area of expertise. He was also, I didn't, don't even always mention this, he had worked as a social worker. So he was a very compassionate person. So we said, you've got to see him beyond and explain things to him and be kind to him. Otherwise, he's scared. Um, he had colon cancer. He's very scared and he's getting upset and he's not himself. You know, he passed away not so long after, but I just never forgot that lesson that why do we have to, why does my father who gave military service, who worked as, in hospitals as a scientist, have to behave in such a respectable way and so gentlemanly just to get the care and treatment everybody deserves? Yeah. Uh, and so when you were telling that story, it just, it resonated with me personally through experiences with my parents and with my my children of this sort of need a lot of times to uh, present your your resume and credentials just to have good health care. And I, I think that it's something that that you talk about uh, in, the, in later in the book of training that's going on in terms of looking out for biases, whether they be implicit or explicit, just just eliminating those things from from healthcare. I do want to ask you a question as as we sort of talk to this. Are black bodies different? Do we have physiological differences, biological differences that create different health come or create these health disparities? The short answer is no. Um, clearly, we have some differences in skin, hair texture, things like that. But those have nothing to do with our bodies on the inside. So we there is no difference. However, there are myths around genetic difference that have been left over since enslavement, since we first came to these shores in 1619, that were used to justify ill treatment, that our bodies were inferior, our minds were inferior, we had different, um, we could endure great amounts of pain, including emotional pain, was a myth. What's alarming is some of these myths about genetic differences are still embedded in the healthcare, in healthcare training, education, and the system itself today. And I think that's what's frightening to me, uh, that those kinds of myths about genetic differences, and they're also even along the way to getting to present, when we're, we were looking at certain, like, why do Black infants not last as long or have higher, we have higher levels of infant mortality? Scientists at the beginning trying to figure that racial disparity in that instance out went right to, oh, Black bodies are different. That is always the go-to, even at the very beginning of COVID. There were a few people saying, oh, there's something genetically different about Black people that's making our COVID outcomes worse. And none of that is true. 
Right. And and a lot of these myths came from really what, what in America we would call thought leaders then and now, people like Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Russ or Samuel Cartwright. I mean, these are, these are heavyweight names. You know, it's, I just think about capitalism. There was so much, slavery was really propping up our economy, supporting all parts of the economy, not just in the South, but, but the whole South. We provided free labor and we provided more and more free labor. Plus our bodies were traded and sold, bought and sold, which also generated income. And so the myths run deep in order to keep this system in place. And that's where they came from. And at first, when I was first writing about this for the 1619 Project, I was kept saying myths and fallacies. And one of the medical historians pulled me aside and said, you might be calling them myths, but these were codified in science. So it was white Southern doctors, many of whom owned enslaved people, were really putting these in medical journals, putting these myths about high pain tolerance and um, low lung function into medical journals. So it was codified. It was at medical in medical proceedings at conferences. And these were scientists and doctors who were respected in other ways, who were pushing these false ideas and assumptions about Black people's bodies in order to justify cruel treatment. Uh-huh. And because of sort of the the stature of the the people, like you said, they were codified pseudoscience and and not just myths at the time. This has affected U.S. policy and the treatment and where treatment centers are set up and who gets treated. And there's a quote, and you have it in the in your book from Fannie Lou Hamer, and I'm going to butcher it, but it essentially is is that the black woman's body has never been her own. And you illustrate that both in your writing for the New York Times magazine, but also in this book, Under the Skin, through the Ralph sisters. Can you talk a little bit about their story? Uh, The Ralph sisters, they were sterilized against their will and without their parents' permission in 1973. And I looked back, I, you know, I thought about them a lot when I was writing the book. And so I decided, how did that happen? I decided to go and do that history. It turned out that when the Ralph family came, they used to be in, ironically, in the same county where the Tuskegee syphilis study happened. The family were six children, two parents. They were farmers and then, or kind of migrant workers. And so they, the jobs went away. And they, so they were at the tail end of the great migration. And some of those people didn't make it all up, all the way to Chicago or Detroit or Cleveland. They went to bigger cities in the South. So this family went from rural Alabama to Montgomery, and there was a whole bunch of Black people coming, and many of them unskilled and uneducated. And they got on the radar of the public health system because they went to the two daughters, the three daughters went to public school. They were getting public health treatment. They were getting, you know, quote unquote, welfare benefits. And essentially, their fertility of a 12-year-old girl and a 14-year-old girl were taken away in order to not to, you know, to not have the government pay for them and to for them to have any more babies. So when I was looking into that, I was shocked, but then also saw the lawsuit that happened. So a really kind Black social worker felt responsible for them and went to the Southern Poverty Law Center. At the time, Julian Bond was the chair of the board. And the lawyers and, and Julian Bond saw that this could be a huge case. So they sued the federal government for sterilizing these two young black girls, 12 and 14, 
against their will. They ended up winning the lawsuit, which was so great. (laughs) However, the Ralph family never got any kind of repair, apology, reparations, anything like that. But what the lawsuit uncovered was that 100 to 150,000 other women in the South were also mostly Black, were also sterilized in this same way, often by government under government auspices. So that's just awful. I'll just give you a little coda for the end. After my the New York Times Magazine excerpted my Ralph story, a woman in Detroit who is a really nice white person who read the story ended up giving the Ralph sisters enough money to buy a house. They never got their apology, but I think they're moving into their new house this weekend. Well, that's good. That's 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 good to hear that there is some that there are people reading, reading the work and responding to it. You know, I will pause here for a minute to put in a another midterm. Please vote for for my audience, because there were some names associated with the story in terms of the lawsuit and this being widespread, like you said, through throughout the South and many states having had sterilization sort of policies or programs. I saw names that I'd all only associated with Watergate, Casper Weinberger <laughs> and John Ehrlichman. And I say that to say that just as this is, I'm, I'm taking the detour from health into voting. I will come back to health is we have to vote because we don't know. You're not just voting for the candidate. You're voting for the candidates, support staff and their ideologies permeate everything. So anyway, I, I, had no idea that they had ever been involved in any aspect of U.S. health, but uh, duh, it, it makes sense. So all anyway. this happened during the Nixon administration. So that alone tells you. Yeah, and you know, I think that's for the for for people who like to talk about things having been a long time ago. This is 1973, 1974, 1975. This is not that long ago. Any of us who can remember all of the bicentennial commercials can remember that. And uh, anybody who has 70s parties can can remember that. So so thank you for that. One of the other things that a story or, or that you, you talked really lovingly about, but also in, in sort of a, a detail that for me as a reader really made me connect to, to the story was the story of Simone Landrum in Louisiana and New Orleans and how unequal treatment in health care can really have some some bad outcomes for, for Black folks, and particularly in this case, Black women. I connected with Simone in 2017 through her doula, Latona Giwa, who I met at a conference, and she said, why don't you come down and see my work as a doula, someone who helps women um, have babies when they're pregnant and have their children. And so I did. I went down and I shadowed her in New Orleans and I saw she's so wonderful, young black woman. And then the last day I was going to leave and she said, oh, one of my clients wants to meet you and tell you her story. And that was Simone Landrum. So we were sitting in Simone's kitchen and she was telling the story of the year before she had lost her baby. And even though she had all the signs of preeclampsia, like any doctor could have noticed that she was having headaches. She had actual high blood pressure and her face and hands were swollen. Those are like, even I, I'm not a doctor. I could say, oh, be careful if you're pregnant, you're not Mm -hmm. well. He ignored those signs. She thought her water was breaking and she was really bleeding out. She had a stillbirth that year and then she almost lost her life. 
I met her when she was pregnant again, and now she's got a different doctor, different hospital, and a doula who is going to be with her. He told me that story. Me, I was interviewing her for this article in the New York Times Magazine. So I'm thinking, oh, I'm done. Yeah, I got this amazing you know, narrative. And then she looked at me and I felt like she was saying, come back for the birth. And I said, who's going to be with you? And she said, only the doula. So I ended up going back. Her baby was due something like November, uh, December 20th. So okay. I went back, but I went by accident. I thought the baby is coming sooner. So I ended up going three weeks ahead. So I really got to know her. I took her to her doctor's appointments. I met her healthcare providers. I was thinking this is going to be great. The week before she went for an appointment and the baby wasn't doing well at all. And so she and I were together and, and they said, you need to go have this baby. Now we're going to induce the baby. We're, we don't think he's healthy. We called the doula. We're in labor and delivery. And all of the sudden, all of the things I had been doing, all this research on how she was treated last time started happening again. But I was in the room and the doula was in the room. So I was surprised that they would treat her so badly. They were not paying attention to her, only focusing on the machines. They were asking her questions like, oh, how come you have so many children? You know, where are you going to have this one sleep? They were rude. There were no black providers in New Orleans. Even the nurse, all the nurses were white. When it came time to have the baby, there was a doctor we had never seen. It wasn't her regular doctor. He shoves his hands inside of her. We're like, who are you? Then he goes out of the room to change his gown. And I guess the residents, interns, medical students, or whoever they were, were taking turns saying, oh, it's your turn to have the baby. It's your turn. This woman had lost a baby, almost lost her life the year before. She deserved to be treated much better than that. And, you know, she had had a trauma the year before. So for them to ignore her like that was shocking. The baby was born and he's fine. He's five now. He's in kindergarten. But I went back and I thought, I need to tell this story, not sort of the happy ending part. I'm glad there was a happy ending, but this is different that I witnessed this kind of unequal treatment myself. Yeah. So, you know, with that story uh, and and actually with a lot of your stories, as uh, like you said, you started at, at Essence as a son, brother and husband. I, I realize now in a, a New York Times subscriber that I've been reading your work for a long time, even if I didn't put the name there. I've been reading. You've written almost every important black health story for for a while now. So I, I, I really appreciated that. You said you, you connected to the story with Latona Giwa, who's a doula. Where does the profession of doulas stand, not just in Louisiana, but just sort of nationwide? It seemed like Latona, not, well, I would have to say that what you described in terms of her being there for, you know, calming her down, interceding with the parade of, of healthcare people coming in and asking the questions about, have you had a pregnancy terminated or something to the question that it was sort of triggering stress in Simone over and over, but it really seemed like Latona was so important as a doula to the success of Simone delivering her baby. 
Talk to me about doulas. Well, Latona Giwa is extra special because she was trained as a labor delivery nurse. She didn't, she wasn't, she got sort of bitter around the profession and how people were treated. So she started Birthmark Doula Collective as a social justice oriented organization. And what she was doing, what you described is when the healthcare providers were calling Simone's lost baby Harmony, the demise over and over the demise. And she made them stop because that was really stressing um, Simone out. What I really love about doulas right now is a doula used to be sort of a privilege. It was mostly sort of upper-class women who were able to afford doula services, but now doulas have gotten much more um, social justice oriented and especially around this crisis in maternal mortality. So you see many more people getting trained as doulas so they can be support for a women, especially Black women who are birthing and um, really sort of short circuit some of these problems that happen during birth. And I'm really excited about that movement. Yeah, and I was I was excited to not just hear about that, but, I, you know, listen, you do this for a living, but that article also had some policy wins as well. I was really happy about that. And I think the last thing I wrote about Latona was she did all this stuff for Simone, basically life-saving work. She even drove her home from the hospital with lasagna in the back of her Subaru. She cooked for Simone and then she got paid $600 for all that work. And I mean, it was months because I started, I met her in November and this whole thing ended probably by in February and she made $600. So I think one of the good things that happened is at first in New York, where doulas became covered by Medicaid and also insurance. And that is happening nationwide, where there's a explicit support for doulas in the form of money and saying, wait, your service is valuable, if not life-saving. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a good outcome. I want to stick with maternity and infant mortality and birth weights and those things. You talked about there's studies that have been done between Black women here in the United States, women in Africa, and women in the Caribbean. So we should all technically be biologically the same. But there's a difference in terms of the birth weights of babies born to Black women in the United States from women in the Caribbean and in Africa. I'm really interested in this study. And it was two perinatologists in Chicago. And they looked at birth certificates for like really a lot of people. This is one of those studies that's like gold standard. So they looked at the birth certificates in generation one in four groups, Black American women, Black women who were immigrants from the Caribbean and some of the poorest countries in Africa, white American women and immigrant white women from Europe. And the first round of looking at the birth weights on the birth certificates, all the groups were the same, basically normal, quote unquote, except for the black women, women, black American women whose babies were smaller. So then they looked at the next generation. So if those people were had girls, women, female, then they looked at their babies. And by one generation, the white women, uh, both groups, I think it was the immigrant women were a little bit larger, the babies. White women were the same. The black women were the same, small. But the women from Africa and the Caribbean's babies were smaller. So you would think, one, if this were a genetic issue, then why wouldn't the first round of black babies, no matter what country you're from, be the same? 
You know what I mean? So why would the, Af- yeah. the African-American babies, if it was genetic, we're from their gene, you know, like there are our people too, be the same. And then why, when you come into a much wealthier country where there's, you know, obviously a lot more benefits, that's why they are here. Why would their babies be smaller? And these two perinatologists, I really like them, but they're like straight ahead guys. They're like real scientists. But what I remember their quote, I read it in a like a scientific magazine and their one of their quotes was, there's something about a being a black woman in America that's bad for your body and bad for your baby. They don't yeah. talk like that. <laughs> they usually just say, raw, 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 science, science, science. So I, right. that's why I got excited about them. And later they started using the word racism because they just have, have done so much research in this area. But that really just knocked out genetics as the reason, because I mean, thinking about it, why wouldn't black American babies, if this was a genetic problem, inferiority of the black woman's body, then as we're in America getting more and more diluted by being raped or intermarriage and all the things that have made people, us kind of quote unquote mixed race, why wouldn't we have actually better babies? Because, you know, there's less of the black gene, which doesn't exist. And I asked them that and they were like, oh yeah, we did think that we just didn't write a lot about that part. But I was very interested in that research because it really proves and it's really kind of, you know, I'm just using this term black and white. Yeah. And you wrote and I was about that study that women immigrating from poorer countries in Europe, when they get to America and have advantage of the sort of American wealth and healthcare system and technology that it reverses for them. They, they, Women immigrating from European countries seem to have babies who are at a higher birth weight they benefit. once they get here. And it's a deficit for Black people. And yeah. when I talk, I was talking about, I was at a medical school and I was talking about this. And then I'm not kidding. People started insisting that it had something to do with nutrition. And I said, I did not say anything about nutrition, okay? So there was this assumption that when the African women came here, they started eating, I don't know, McDonald's and soul food. And I'm like, no, you are missing the point. When you come to a country, our country spends more on healthcare than any country in the world, $12,000 per person per year. So why would, if you have the best healthcare, you're having this, the wealthiest, basically we're the second wealthiest country in the world, why wouldn't, you know, your health status rise, especially at birth? So that is not, and I was like, everybody was talking about nutrition. I was like, wait, there was no nutrition. We didn't, they didn't look at that. They were looking at this thing. There was nothing about nutrition in this. And, and what you're talking about is not real. Yeah. So to that end, what is weathering? Weathering is a very interesting concept, and it was um, created by Dr. Arlene Geronimus, who is a um, professor at the University of Michigan. And it is the idea that coping with repeated discrimination in the form of insults and implicit and explicit bias changes the systems of the body. So whenever something like something happens to you that's negative, your body goes into fight or flight mode. So your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, your um, stress hormones rise. And this is completely normal because if you were running from a tiger, you would want all the systems of your body to fire up. But for people who are marginalized and oppressed in America and what we know best about is Black people, 
the systems stay fired too long, too much, and it actually wears away um, the systems of the body and causing a kind of premature aging. And Dr. Geronimus is very wonderful and poetic, so she called it weathering, the way a storm weathers a house, knocks the paint off, it chips off the shingles of the roof, it breaks the windows. That's what happens to us as we're trying to cope with living in America. But then also we weather the storm. We're still here. We have kin in the form of family. We have love. We have community. We have spirituality, which keeps us alive. And I really love that term, but I'm very excited for her because at first when she was talking about this 30 years ago, she was completely treated badly because she was looking at teen pregnancy. And she figured this out because if you looked at teen pregnancy back in the nineties, you know, it was a huge problem, but infant mortality was not related to teen pregnancy. In other words, it was babies were dying in older black mothers, not the teenagers who were having the babies. And then she was accused of supporting teen pregnancy. And what she was saying, it's actually living in America longer, enduring insults as a black woman is what's causing infant and later maternal mortality, not being a teen mother. And that's how she kind of figured it out and has since revised her theories and has a book coming out next March. And I just read it. <laughs> it's, okay. It's okay. I'll, I'll be definitely looking forward to, to that. It's called weathering. <laughs> it's called weathering. Yes. Yeah, so we, we will definitely be on the lookout for, for that. One of the things that struck me in listening to your story about moving to Denver, I think you and your sister and being one of a few African-Americans in your class and your in your school when you got to, to Denver. And I think of many black parents right now. I noticed from my time in, in sort of corporate when it's time to for kids to go to school. A lot of white parents are just like, well, they're just going to go to the school down the street. They're not stressing it. But there's so many parents, myself included, that when it comes time to go to school, there's this whole idea of, well, if you live in an area where it's heavily segregated or what have you, will your babies not have a qualified teacher or will they have Wi-Fi and will it be older facilities? Or do you move into an area where it's a wider space? And we then experience that through university and, and colleges and those kinds of things. And so one of the things that it stood out to me is that being in elite spaces does not reduce sort of the weathering or microaggressions or any of that. It can actually be just as damaging. And you talked about, you you cited a few examples. You cited your own, just sort of the things that you went through. And there was a group of Black men who entered Yale in 1966 that you talked about. And one of my friends was in that class and he wrote about it. And then I talked to him recently and I was trying to get him to see if that how the folks, his classmates at Yale had weathered the storm. And he didn't have any information, but it was surprising at how many of, you know, these People graduating from Yale should be the cream of the crop, but many of them died prematurely. In Dr. Geronimus' book, she looked at the Black graduates at Princeton, where she went to college, and it was the death rates were so much higher, life expectancy lower among the Black graduates from this Ivy League institution than among the white graduates. 
And she looked at also some of the health effects are actually slightly worse for educated Black people. And I think high blood pressure is one where if you look at the numbers, especially for Black men, some of the numbers are worse for the more educated folks. I was attracted to her research because it helped me understand the paradox of maternal mortality. So a Black woman with, Black women are three to four times more likely to die or almost die than a white woman in childbirth or pregnancy. And then a Black woman with a master's degree, a PhD, JD, or MD is more likely to die or almost die than a white woman with an eighth grade education. So that shatters the myth that there's something about pregnancy that we're doing wrong, that we're just doing something wrong, or that there's something, we already know that it's not genetics. So instead of being blamed that something is wrong with our culture, something's wrong with our bodies, our education, we have to look at the toll that racism is taking on us. And it comes out in what is essentially a stress test, which is, you know, pregnancy and childbirth. Yeah. And you're writing about that. I thought of Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, and just sort of if it's class, then you can perform your way out of it. But if it's race, you can't perform your way out of it. So no matter, you know, the education level or income level, we're still we're still dealing with the health care that, like at the beginning, says has longstanding discrimination, racism, unique that wears on the black body and biases that are in the healthcare system. I was happy and I was, as I was reading, I was like, I hope she gets to mental health because it is, in speaking of of, of mental health, with Black women in particular, the, the trope, the strong Black woman, just that, that idea of being strong. And you cited a number of really go-getters as sort of anecdotes and dealing with mental health in the healthcare system. And, and, and so I really appreciate that, number one. One, why did you feel it was important to include mental health? And what were you surprised to see in, in your writing or researching for the book? On that chapter, I was a little, even though my parents, uh, my mother is a mental, was trained as a mental health provider, and as well as my sister, I was a little nervous about doing that one correctly. And I, I, there was so much to say. So what I did was I divided it by gender. So I looked at the Black men, mental health and policing. And I had a very good narrative of my friend's brother, who was, you know, this this is a highly educated, the father, they lived in Connecticut. The father was a college professor. He was mentally ill and just always not quite diagnosed, always the family trying to get help for this guy. But in so many cases, he interacted with the police. And so it just made his problems worse and worse. Then he started medicating. He had bipolar disorder and he started medicating the downs with drugs. And then finally, his mother was always terrified that something would happen to him. And I remember one of her white friends said, you just need to give tough love. And she said, I just can't do tough love, but I'm afraid that my son is going to be killed. And that's what happened to him. He had a run in with the police in Boston. He ended up getting assassinated, murdered, really. And then the police covered it up. 
And yeah. really it was, it just broke my heart. I know this family really well. And he was such, I mean, all of them were such hard striving people. They were in a predominantly white area their whole time. There was shame around him that they admit around his mental illness. And it was hard for them and his drug addiction. On the female, a woman's side, Audrey Brian, I went to, she, went, we, she and I went to the same college and I heard her tell her story about just trying so hard, like all of her, um, starting with an eating disorder. She's also from Denver, where I'm from, starting with an eating disorder, which was undiagnosed, then mental illness undiagnosed in her. Then she was trying to just really work hard in a predominantly white institution of our college. And then in LA as a stylist until she ended up being trying to take her own life. But really, so much of it was about hiding her mental illness because she was just trying to be strong because of that idea that Black people do not suffer from mental illness. We either use religion and we just, you know, have this strong spirituality, which saves us, which is good in itself, but it doesn't save you from mental illness or we're just so strong. It just it doesn't affect us. She ended up trying to take her own life. And now she, thank God, got help and talks about it openly. And I'm really proud of her. And I was happy to have her story in my book. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciated that chapter. And, you know, when people pick up the book, I, I, I would I would urge you to both read it and also use it as, as references. It's a really important book, particularly, you know, with the mental health. What stood out to me is, is the so many misdiagnoses and the number of of opportunities may not be the right word, but the number of times that Black people who have mental health issues end up being criminalized or having run-ins with law enforcement. Last season, one of the things we talked about was how much zip code drives your opportunities if, in America. And if you're Black, You've had sort of the experience of of of, of redlining, or you, in one way or another, whether you know it or not, you've lived through redlining and sort of the wealth gap that's come along with that. So you're talking about, you know, your wealth. You're also talking about the access to education, transportation, and so many other things. But where you live matters in terms of health as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it took me a little bit to get to wrap my mind around it because I wanted to make sure I was describing um, sort of what they call the social determinants of health, like where you live matters, where you work matters, where you get educated, where you pray and play. That all matters. But it was like I was like really being cautious to say, I don't want to blame people for the uh, state of our communities. And so right in 2020, I went to Chicago with my mother. My mother's from Inglewood, the south side of Chicago, the neighborhood of Inglewood. And I was really curious to see all of the places where she grew up and where I grew up until I was 10 years old. And I also knew that it had the Chicago has the largest life expectancy, racial life expectancy gap. Streeterville, people live to age 90. Nine miles south, where my mother's from, Inglewood, people live to age 60. So I remember that community as, you know, that's where they, you know, my family went when they came up from Mississippi. I remember it as a place of, you know, like striving and joy and sort of achievement, all that stuff. My, I went to Harvard Elementary School. 
Well, we went back there. It was so destroyed that finally everywhere my mom wanted me to see was gone. There was police tape around the place where my parents first lived when they were married. My mother's school where she went with Lorraine Hansberry and Gwendolyn Brooks was gone. It was boarded up. And when I, I remember doing an interview and we talked about, you know, I said, please explain this to me by a local physician. And she was talking about redlining, which I already knew. And then I hung up and I'm um, writing the notes. And then the, she called me back and she said, oh, I forgot to remind you to look into contract buying. And mm. I did not know about that right away. I knew about redlining, which is terrible. But then contract buying meant that all of my my family that came up from Mississippi to and they wanted to buy their home could not buy it outright, couldn't get a mortgage. So you had to buy it on a contract if you were black. And then that meant you never really owned it. You were always afraid of missing a payment and you could lose your place. And it sapped billions of dollars of wealth out of that community in Chicago. And I said to my mom, hey, mom, I learned about this thing called contract buying. How did grandfather buy his house? You know, the first place he owned. And she just said really casually, she goes, I don't remember, but I, I something about a contract. And he was always terrified of losing it. And I just thought, oh, my God. And when you see that community, you see that there's no way people can be healthy there because it lacks the basic services. It lacks, you know, the school, the schools are closed, broken down. They're, the services are not good. Health, the health care isn't good. There's a lack of healthy, affordable food and it's unsafe in many places. So that just doesn't engender health because of the lack of wealth. Yeah. Yeah. And so I am a Chicagoan and my mom taught at Beethoven Elementary, which is on 47th Street. And our family church was at 47th and Dearborn, St. Paul. And so I would go, I have been going back to Chicago pretty much since I became an adult. And I was there once with my three children and we were in the North Michigan Avenue area because my daughter had to make a annual pilgrimage to the American girl store. And uh, as we're walking around in that area, I can't remember maybe one or all of them had to go to the, to the bathroom, go to the restroom. And I couldn't figure out how to get someplace quickly. So I looked and I said, there's Northwestern's hospital in North Michigan Avenue area really just a few steps away. So I said, we can go there and use the restroom. I'd never been, and that's near the sort of Street of Ville. It may be actually in Street of Ville, but I had never been in a hospital that was so, number one, clean, so modern. I, I actually, when I went in, I thought I was in a hotel. And it dawned on me just how different the healthcare is. I'd, I'd never been into a, a, a facility like that. So I've, I've lived it, seen it, experienced it. And my parents migrated to from Alabama to like the 47th Street area. And then we grew up far south, like in Washington Heights, like near Morgan Park. And so I remember growing up for anyone if you got sick, you did not want to go to Roseland Hospital, which was just probably five or 10 minutes away, but just did not want to go there. That was just like, if you got to go to Roseland, it's going, it's like a, a death sentence. But I could go on and on about Chicago. With app, so I'm going to pull myself out because I do want to, to ask something. Who is, who is Dr. Robert Bullard? 
Hmm. Dr. Bullard is this brilliant man who is in for the long haul. And he is, they used to call him the father of environmental justice. But now he's gotten, I saw him recently and he has a lot of gray hair and he's a little bit older. I said, "Mm, Dr. Bullard, they're going to start calling you the grandfather. Grandfather, (laughs) Um, He's lovely. So he figured out, he was living in Texas, in Houston, and he understood, he's written like so many, 20 books about environmental justice. And what he understood was black communities are more likely to be subject to pollution, whether it's living near a refinery, a landfill, a toxic dump, a waste site, something like that, than white folks, 75% more likely. And he was, the, the thing that really stuck with me was he was in Houston and he was leading this class and teaching him about environmental justice and he calls it dumping in Dixie. And he said, look at those hills. And the kids are like, oh yeah, Texas is flat here. There are no hills. Those are landfills that are kind of hidden. So sometimes when I'm in the South, I'll look around and think, if I see little mountains, especially around communities of color, I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, is that a landfill? But this guy is really smart. And he, anything he writes, I read because he really knows his stuff about environmental justice and has it, you know, he has it very, he's a good educator. He explains it easily. And he's been fighting this fight for a really long time. Yeah. And that that environmental, I, I have to tell you that through my own story of when I would be looking to serve on a board or what have you, and I had opportunities to be a part of environmental organizations. And I have to tell you that ignorantly, I'd say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do something black. I wish I had those time that time back now. But I, I will say we had uh her name is Dr. Nataki, Nataki Osborne Jelks, who is a professor at Spelman in their environmental sciences department. She was on and we were talking about sort of how the environment and environmental justice and all of those things come to play with black folks. But one of the things that really I asked her and it really stood out to me and I, I don't know Greta Thornburg. I'm happy for her, what have you. But I was just like, where are the black folks in sort of environmental justice and and sustainability and what have you. So I was really happy that you included Dr. Bullard and other names in there, because I think it's something that Black people really need to pay attention to. You've written a lot about AIDS. It seems like, for essence, you wrote the first article on AIDS in in an ethnic magazine. And then in the 90s, Newsweek and I think New York Times and others said, you know, we're kind of past that. And you're like, "Uh uh-uh, we're not at all. And uh, you spent some time in a place that's near and dear to my heart, Jackson, Mississippi, uh, which has kind of become an epicenter for AIDS and HIV. Can you talk to me about why haven't we learned as a country or why why are we still dealing with, with AIDS? Well, what I think what happens with any virus and almost any disease, but especially the viruses, they sink down into places and they really take hold in places that where there's oppression and marginalization. So then once I understood that HIV was so devastating the South, especially a town like Jackson, that's, you know, basically 40 percent of gay men there have HIV And I was surprised because I'm like, well, I don't think of that as a gay epicenter. I didn't think of it as a place, you know, I thought, oh, that would be in New York or something or San Francisco. But 
places where there's a, where there are problems already, that's where viruses sink in. So many of the places that um, strict, are stricken with HIV are also stricken with COVID. And so that is what you, what I learned to pay attention to, not sort of the, you know, other kinds of tropes around who gets sick and who doesn't. And that's what I pay attention to. Where are the places that have been left behind and the people? One of the things you, so you wrote about doulas and when you were writing in your chapter where you covered some of that, you talked about community health workers that seems to be a good idea. And can you can you tell us what a community health worker is and how we can get more of them, quite frankly? Community health worker is a person that is may have had a lived experience with an illness, may have some kind of training as a healthcare worker, but is the kind of human person that connects the patient with the system. And the system can be cold, unforgiving, expensive, unkind, not seeing people as people people. But then you have a community health worker who is the kind link between the system and the person. And I saw Latona Giwa, the doula, recently, and she said, I said, do you consider yourself a community health worker? And she said, yes, I'm honored to be part of that. I love that. That's awesome. So you remain optimistic despite all of these things. I would imagine that People like Latona, doulas and health, community health workers like Cedric Sturdivant are keeping you optimistic. What are some other things that are good things that are happening as a a result of people becoming more aware of, of how racism, not race or not class, is really driving down, driving health inequities? I am teaching pre-med students this semester, usually journalism, but this I um, switched for one semester for pre-med. These students are so interesting. I have almost all physician, physicians-to-be of color. I'm actually, 100% of them are people of color. And one thing that is very encouraging is that when there's studies that show when the provider and the patient are have an affinity, whether it's race, gender, whatever it is, the outcome is better. So to see, you know, my, my, I teach at the City University of New York, really striving to educate future generations of physicians of color, it's really good. The only bad part is I had to have a little bit of a come to Jesus with them to say, I love that you're going to be better doctors, but you have to guard your own heart because there will be people who look at you and say, when's the real doctor coming in? Who are you? Are you the receptionist? Are, you know, people are going to say that they might. So I want you to stick together and be strong and get ready for that because we need you in this healthcare system. So that really excites me. But I've been doing lectures at even predominantly white institutions, Harvard, Yale, (laughs) all the uh, different medical schools. And I see medical students super hungry for to learn more about racial health disparities and medical inequality and to learn. They're saying, I don't want to be the kind of healthcare provider that, you know, that have harmed people in the past. And I think that's just such a good omen. And we should support medical students. They are trying to make changes in their own medical textbooks that still have some of the old myths while they're going to medical school. They're you know pushing back against the administration sometimes. I think that's exciting. Some of the laws, like we talked about the you know momnibus law that is looking really at maternal and infant mortality. Much of the legislation is led by Black women leaders, and that I find very exciting. 
places like the CDC and some of the medical school administrations are, are focusing in on health equality. They're saying racism is a public health threat, saying it out loud, saying it straightforwardly. Yeah. And I think this is an exciting change. And I just hope that we can, you know, I'm optimistic, but I'm just really hoping that we can hold on to this moment and not just sort of fade back into thinking that it's, you know, some kind of inferiority in some way that is causing racial disparities in health, health outcomes. Yeah, no, and, and, and yeah, that is good. And and, I, and you spoke about, you know, medical schools teaching implicit bias and, and all of those things, and, and all of that's great. And I still caution myself because I read an op-ed, Wall Street Journal, something like when medicine goes woke, Governor Ron DeSantis is talking about, you know, woke medicine or what have you. It's 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 like as we make progress, there are that it, these aren't uninfluential people. Right. The, the Wall Street Journal's uh, editorial board is influential as a governor of a state is inf- influential. So I think we have to make sure that books like Under the Skin and, and the people that you cite, their work is is highlighted. Go ahead. I was going to say, I had my medical students last week, my pre-med students, read that Wall Street Journal article by Stanley Goldfarb, who's a yep. Penn University professor. So I said, read this. It was, take two aspirin and call me by your pronouns. Or And that was one. And then another one about how woke, woke, so-called medical students are not going to be prepared to take care of the patients of the future. So I said, three things, sum up what he says. And then give me your best argument based on data of why he's wrong. And I, oh, they, they were on fire. And I said, don't just rant. You must give use evidence to prove why this is incorrect. And then tell me from your heart what you think. And they that was really wonderful. And saying, no, I believe in this. I, I want to be a different kind of doctor. I want to do well. I want to fix our healthcare system. And I was really excited by them saying that and them being really on fire about being different and being the change. That's awesome. There's one piece and it. It comes in, in the, at the, at the end of your book. And I don't think we'll have time to go through it in detail, but I really want to thank you for your writing on COVID and about Dickie, uh, Cornell Dickie Charles, I remember actually with your reporting there, I actually didn't read it first. I experienced it through my walk during COVID to keep me sane and listening to the daily podcast and how you were there in New Orleans. It's a place that my wife and I love. And it's a place that, so I went to school in Jackson, Mississippi, that I've been going to, whether I should have been going or not, uh, to New Orleans (laughs) since undergrad. But there was something that you wrote and I, I didn't catch it then, but I, I, I really felt it here is when you were writing about Dickie, who, for those listening, is a man in New Orleans who was in that early wave of COVID that unfortunately died because of COVID. And when you get the book, you will you will you will feel this. But there's something as a black man that I really felt and I felt not only for myself, but for my father and the men that coached uh, me in Little League Baseball and what have you, is that he was a husband, father, an essential worker with two jobs and a member of the community. And I I thought what you really did in writing about him is that 
we see the numbers and we know that some of us knows that COVID is really bad, but you really humanize it. And it just, it's just that when we, when we lost these people, we lost members of the community. We lost, we lost family members. It was, it was, I, I just, I just, just wanted to say that that was really, um, I, I enjoyed that. Well, thank you. And the reason I found out about the Zulus is I had a friend in New Orleans said, go to their Facebook page. And at the beginning of COVID, and they were saying, pray for our brothers. And then they would say the person's name. And then if they, if one of them died, they'd say, this brother got his wings. And I just remember, see, it was an emoji. And I remember being so moved by that. And also moved by Mr. Charles. The thing about him is he was what, you know, when I was growing up, you call a good brother. Yeah. He was the guy that was yeah. just really, and he was a behind the scenes person doing, you know, just a volunteer for the Zulu crew and during Mardi Gras when there was, you know, COVID was all over the place, but no one knew. And the government was, starting with the president, was squelching it down, was squelching down information that could have been life-saving. And the fact that this good brother, that happened to him, was terrible. But what the part that really struck me too was the loving support he had of his wife until the day he uh, breathed his last breath. She was right there. And and she was very generous to talk to me and tell me that story. Yeah. No, that was that was a that was, that was a really good story. And uh, you have a way of including humans in all of these stories that really make them they make them very informative stories. And, and sometimes for me as a uh, as, as somebody who's maybe uh, an empath that there there's sometimes I have to like I had to put this down for a minute and come back because it's, it's getting to me. But I will tell you that there are three things from all of this COVID stuff, at least three that piss me off is that we call people essential workers. And I still see hospitals that have signs up that say heroes work here. We're in midterms and we do not have an essential workers bill of rights. We don't have anything like that. We didn't do anything in early in, in COVID. So you wrote uh, about Lowndes County in terms of environmental, but I will tell you that Albany, Georgia here almost collapsed. The hospital system almost collapsed. And Albany is a lot of black folks, a lot of black folks in Mobile, a lot of black folks in Montgomery, Milwaukee. We didn't do anything in terms of how do we change and implement community health workers in those communities. We didn't expand the hospitals. We still have a nursing shortage that nobody's saying, you know, just from a, like we put a man on the moon, just like we need more nurses. So we need to improve our primary care system. I just think it's just such a, a loss of, it's like we've, we've moved on and I, I will pull back from, from, I will pull myself back, but it's, it's something that really bothers me whenever I see that heroes that work here. Mm -hmm. Now, Linda, I have something that I have to reconcile in the book, though. I have one that I have to reconcile. In supporting Simone Landrum, you talked about in the book going down there to be with her and that you cooked for her and her family, which I got that part. But I have to go all the way back to the beginning because I, this really resonated with me when, when, you know, black folks and we're using the salt and you said, you know, don't use the salt will kill dad or what have you. And you said, not me said, not me, but you said that my family to this day when I cook runs for the salt shaker. So I am trying to reconcile how did Linda Villarosa, who is self-admitting to be an under seasoner sometimes, 
go to New Orleans and cook for a woman and her family, a New Orleans family. Because in New Orleans, listen, the food is heavy, the food is spicy. I I could not reconcile how you did that without the spices. Well, what I did was my own portion... (laughs) was under seasoned, but I made okay. sure everybody else is because believe me, I know I see people. <laughs> well, oh, can you pass the hot sauce? Can you pass the salt when I cook? So I'm like, okay, let's not mess this up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that was a part that that really stood out to me because New Orleans is my place. I'm like, I don't know how she pulled this off. What do you hope happens as a result of this book? Why, why did you write it? What do you? What's the outcome? I well, I think two reasons. One is I just really want the healthcare system itself to change. To say to just I know I'm part of a kind of a growing chorus of voices saying that to say the healthcare system is harming people. Not you know, and the very saying is you know the uh, Hippocratic oath is first do no harm. So we have to fix that. And then my daughter was the person who really said this to me. She said, mommy, I know you really want to work at changing the healthcare system. But one thing your book does is it's really important that it supports and lifts up stories that people have and makes it confirming. Because when something happens to you, you just can't believe it. It's like, oh, maybe it's my fault. I must have done something wrong. It must be me. And what my book tries to do in through the narratives is to say, no, it's not your fault. This is a shared experience that many of us have had. And it's universal in this country for Black people. And I want to lift up those stories to say, I see you and I hear you. Awesome. And you said working on this 1619 project expanded your thinking. Uh, How so? I had thought when, well, I got the uh, contract to do the book in 2018. Then I got pulled off to do the 1619 project. So I had to pause. I had thought I would start the research in 1850 because there's excellent medical records starting with those early 1850 census. So it was during enslavement, but near the nearish the end. But then once I started looking at that history and finding the through line to today, then I thought, wait, I need to include this in this book. I can't just ignore what happened in, you know, during the enslavement, the early enslavement years. And especially if some of it's still like the pain tolerance, you know, and that stuff and the lung function, those myths are still embedded in medical education and training. I need to address that. So my book was a year and a half late. <laughs> it's the bottom line. Well, it was right on time. I, I won't I, listen. I understand between you and the publisher, but for us, it was right on time. So I'm glad that you worked on the 1619 project and actually that you were able to include COVID and, and its uh, impact on the country and black folks as well. As we come to a close, uh, we ask everyone uh, this question what does it mean to live well? Uh, for me, it means my family, my community. Uh, I love teaching. I love nature. And I love having the freedom to just enjoy the parts of life that make me happy. Awesome. And we close with something, a couple of things that are fun. Now, you are New York City based and you did some reporting in Ethiopia about their health equity workers. And you've done a couple of stories that kind of were told through the lens of New Orleanians. So if there was one place for one meal, where would you tell someone from outer space to go? New York City, Ethiopia, or to New Orleans? 
I think I would say New Orleans, but don't have me cook the meal. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. New Orleans, but don't have you cook the meal. I will tell you, I think that's probably the answer, but I, Mark, I love Ethiopian food. So I might say go to Ethiopia. I don't know. And listen, the work you, that you do and the time that you've spent in New Orleans is, listen, that's, it's, it's God's work. It's yeoman's work. But I'm sure during that time that you've seen something or heard a sound or a band or something that's, that's, that's a cultural memory for you in New Orleans. I was uh, one of the early people at Essence who was the team that created the Essence Music Festival. So that first, I mean, I've been to others, but the first one, I mean, (laughs) unbelievable. I had never been to New Orleans. So the food, the music, the the workshops we did was really, that was one of the best times I, and I went, my father was still living. So the, we all went, my family went together and was really, really wonderful. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Linda Villarosa, thank you. I want to urge everyone to get under the skin, the hidden toll of racism on American lives and on the na- on the health of our nation. We always encourage people to go to independent booksellers, independent and black, even better, but get this book and read it and get a copy for your friend. Linda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank we you. really appreciate thank your time. Thank you. You are uh, such a close reader of the book. I'm really honored. Um, and it's really wonderful to talk to you. Awesome. Awesome. All right. For all of you all, stay tuned as for announcements about future episodes. And we thank you all for sticking with us. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Market G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.